0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? We are back with our series of episodes that are covering the history of social networks. So this one would be the third episode on this particular subject. In the last episode in this series, we focused exclusively on MySpace and Facebook, two networks that launched a year apart from one another, and how MySpace dominated the landscape for a few years, but due to lots of reasons, gave up the lead to Facebook and ultimately faded from view for a couple of years. Uh, It did eventually return as a music discovery platform and less of a social network, And that's kind of what it is today. And of course, we all know how Facebook, the company, turned into Meta and the various issues that this company currently faces. So let's get back to our timeline and see what's next, because now we're in the era of social networks where things got really crowded for a while. In fact, it got so crowded that an analyst named Clay Shirky created a new acronym to describe what was going on at the time. That acronym was Y-A-S-N-S, YASNs. It actually stands for Yet Another Social Networking Service. So you know when folks start bandying about acronyms like that, that you're flirting with oversaturation, that everyone saw social networks as being kind of the next phase of the web, and so everyone was trying to get in on it. But we're still in 2004, because even though I and I've said this in the previous episodes, even though I go through kind of the the uh, an overview of the history of each company as we get to it, I keep going back to the timeline. It just wouldn't make sense to strictly stick year by year because so much is happening at so many different places. Now, my space would rise to dominate the social networking space and Facebook was not that far behind, but there was still some room in the environment. And some services like LinkedIn, which had launched earlier in 2003, were really able to carve out a space by focusing on a niche in social networking, with LinkedIn's example being a social network for professional networking. That allowed LinkedIn to flourish in that specific arena and continue to this day. There would be several other niche social networks, That would achieve varying degrees of popularity among slices of users, such as pet owners with sites like Dogster. I'm not going to dive into those, really, because they get to be so specific and so relatively small that there's not much point in diving into them. Uh, I should also mention that even early on, there were issues with people trying to game the systems. Uh, which isn't really that big of a surprise, I suppose, because if you have a system, someone's going to figure out how to exploit it. So for example, on Friendster, which we covered in a previous episode, the administrators decided to limit how far out from your connections you could explore on the site. So the idea was, if there was a profile that was more than four degrees of separation from your profile, you wouldn't be able to view it you wouldn't be able to go and look at that profile because you wouldn't be close enough connections to merit it. So some people just wanted to amass as many friends as possible to expand their network out and essentially make it impossible for anyone to have a profile that they couldn't look at. It was kind of like a game. The number of friends you accumulated would be analogous to the, num- the points you could amass in a video game. To that end, People were doing stuff like sending friend requests to distant degrees of separation, you know, folks they didn't know or had never been aware of before, just to see more potential friends being opened up. Uh, Some folks would make fake profiles, either of like a fictional character or maybe a celebrity, solely for the purposes of gathering more friends. The abuse of the platform caused some real cultural problems for the site, and we would see... Similar behaviors emerge on other platforms. Not exactly the same thing necessarily, but more examples of people saying, oh, it works this way, but what if I use it this other way? Which is a real hacker mentality. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Now, whether it was because users wanted to feel popular or they were simply finding value in the network beyond its intended purpose. The activities on Friendster often led to the platform itself losing value in that the folks who were not game gaming, the system who were just there to use it as it was intended were finding it harder to navigate the networks and to be sure that the people they were befriending were actually who they thought they were. All right, let's get back to 2004. Uh, Katarina Fake and Stuart Butterfield, who at the time were married, uh, they later would separate, were working on an MMORPG, that's Massive Multiplayer Online Role-Playing Game. The game's name was Game Never Ending, should have been Game Never Starting because the game would never actually launch. But, uh, But within that game, there was a feature in which users would be able to upload photos, that ended up being spun off into a fully-fledged service of its own, and that service became known as Flickr, F-L-I-C-K-R. By the way, there was this, also this era of web-based companies where it became trendy to not include certain vowels in your name. Twitter, which we will talk about in the next episode of this series, was at one point just called T-W-T-T-R with no I and no E in it. But anyway, Flickr was not the first online photo sharing service. There were others like PhotoBucket and there was an early version of Picasa that kind of had elements of that. Uh, there was also Smug Mug, which was really more for photographers, but it did introduce something really useful. So it wasn't first at allowing you to upload your photos to an album, but it did allow you to do meta tagging. And so you could tag photos with any kind of metadata you liked not just photos you uploaded but also photos that you viewed and that made these photos searchable by keyword so let's say you're an avid diver and a photographer and you upload photos of some of your dives and you use relevant keywords And you use those same keywords to search for other photos from other divers like you. Maybe you find a community of of diver photographers that you didn't know about and you would connect with them. So Flickr effectively outsourced the taxonomy of the photographs that were on its site to the community and the community eagerly took up the task. And this just made Flickr a more valuable tool because you could find photos on just about anything if you just started searching for certain keywords. Flickr would become really famous pretty quickly. Fake and Butterfield founded it in February 2004. And just a year later, in early 2005, internet giant, at the time, Yahoo, would come a-calling. Now, Flickr was still in the early stages of receiving influxes of cash from angel investors. And it was very early days to consider selling to a bigger company. And this was not an easy decision, Uh, Should you play the long game and try to build value in your company, which would in turn push up the price tag? Uh, Alternatively, you could try and just stay a solvent standalone company on your own and not sell to anybody. Or should you cash out when the opportunity arises? This is a very tough thing to consider because keep in mind, this is 2005. It was not that far removed from the dot-com crash. And that crash illustrated that nothing is ever a sure thing. So sometimes when that opportunity comes around, you may not get another one. So there's a lot of pressure. Now at the same time, Flickr's star was on the rise. I mean, even other services like Blogger were leaning on Flickr to power image uploads. So Flickr was becoming more influential in the web in general. Ultimately, the founders made the decision to accept Yahoo's deal, which was reportedly in the neighborhood of 35 million bucks, though some sources say that it's actually maybe as low as 22 million. It just depends upon which one you're looking at. As we will see over and over again in this episode, these acquisition deals, they're typically not public because you're talking about a private company being purchased. You don't often know how much was actually paid for it. So we hear everything from 22 to $35 million. Now, later on, as social network sites were being bought and sold in the hundreds of millions of dollars range, it would appear in retrospect like this could have been the wrong call, right? That Flickr should have held on to itself and just waited a little bit longer and it probably could have sold for way more money. But at the time, that was impossible to say. You just couldn't be sure of it. As for Flickr, Under Yahoo, it would grow substantially. It went from a quarter million users to more than two million in less than a year. And it also increased in features, included one that I thought was super cool, where you could look at a map and click on locations of the map, and it would pull up photographs of that location. So you could actually click around on a map and see photos of those sites. And I thought that was really cool. It was a great way to contextualize photographs. Butterfield and Fake stuck around with Flickr until around 2008, and they left the company at that point. At that point, they had also split as a married couple as well. They would each go on to found other companies. Butterfield would actually co-found one that's a really big deal today, that being Slack. So yeah, one of the founders of Flickr would then go on to co-found Slack. Flickr gave users uh, a lot of storage space to play with. In 2013, Yahoo I mean, this was crazy. They gave users an entire terabyte of free storage for their photos. That was unfathomable at that time. It's still pretty crazy today, but I mean, really at that time, that was nuts. Uh, Flickr Pro users who were paying a subscription fee for their, their Pro account would actually get to what amounted to be unlimited storage. But by this point, Flickr was already facing competition from services like Instagram and Facebook. And users didn't have the same storage at those services. They couldn't put in nearly as many photos there. Uh, Nor did they enjoy the same extensive meta tagging features that you had on Flickr. But the tighter social integration on those platforms won out. So while Flickr undoubtedly had incredible features, and great benefits in the form of storage. It's just, you know, people were being more active on these other social networks, and so Flickr's importance began to fade a bit. Moreover, there were real serious problems going on at the parent company of Yahoo. It was kind of teetering on the edge of a free-fall death spiral for a while. I've done episodes about Yahoo and what went on over there. Uh, I may have to revisit that topic at some point and give kind of a new take or a, at least an update on that because so much has happened at Yahoo. But Verizon acquired Yahoo in 2017 and then put Yahoo under a subsidiary company called Oath. And then the following year, SmugMug, you know, an old photo competitor that had launched in 2002, but had kind of eschewed the social network approach. It was really just purely about, you know, being a place to, to store photos. Uh, it acquired Flickr from Oath. So Flickr ultimately was acquired by an, an old competitor. In 2018, Flickr announced that the uh, it was bringing an end to that terabyte of storage. Users would then have a cap of just 1,000 photos and that anything beyond that would start to see photos deleted from the service. And that led to a bit of a scramble, at least among some parts of the internet, to preserve information. But in many ways, this is kind of like having a physical photo album and then misplacing it, you know, losing it. And if it's out of your mind, you probably don't even miss it. It's just when you think about it that you're like, oh, yeah, whatever happened to that? Now, Flickr's fate also reminds us that online storage is not necessarily for forever. It might seem like that because these are really big companies. They have a lot of redundancy built into them. You know, it's one of those things where, like, if you store your pictures locally and something happens to your home, you might lose all those pictures. But if you store them in the cloud and something happens to a server in the cloud, those photos are more likely than not stored on multiple other servers. So you don't lose them. So we don't often think of things stored in the cloud as being temporary, but they can be, you know, if the company goes out of business or it's acquired by another company or whatever, it can happen. Ultimately, there's no completely safe way to store your digital information, whether it's local or on the cloud, though hopefully most cloud systems will at least give signs that you should migrate stuff elsewhere before they go belly up. Okay, that's Flickr. When we come back, we're going to talk more about a social network that we mentioned in the first episode in this series, but didn't really go into. But first, this quick break. Okay, we talked about Flickr. Now let's move on to Tagged. And again, we talked a little bit about Tagged in the first episode because Tagged ultimately acquired High Five in 2011. And we mentioned High Five early on in this series. But Tagged had its beginnings in 2004 when co-founders Greg Singh and Johann schleier smith launched a site intended for the under-18 crowd, Like the team at Facebook, this project started at Harvard University, but while Facebook was aimed at college students, Tagged was very much looking at kids in middle and high school ages. Now, to that end... The creators set about making an environment that would emphasize security and privacy, which was absolutely critical considering the ages of the users. So users who were 13 or 14 years old, their profiles were restricted so that the public would not be able to view them, nor would anyone on the platform who was over the age of 16. They wouldn't be able to see the 13 or 14 year old profiles either. Likewise, users who were 15 or 16, their profiles were not viewable by the public So these restrictions remained in place when, in 2006, Tagged opened up to users over the age of 18. So initially, Tagged looks at people 18 and younger. Then they say, all right, we're opening it up for people who are older than 18. You might wonder why. Well, one reason why you would do that is because your age, the age of your users is going to continue to creep up, right? Like if you attract someone to your site when they're 15, Four years later, that person's 19. And if your site no longer allows them to be on there and kicks them off, well, that is a problem, right? So anytime you see a site that's aimed at younger users, there's a chance for it to evolve to also cater to older ones. Tagged made a pivot fairly early on as MySpace and Facebook were dominating social networking. Tagged found out from its users that the people who were using Tagged were doing it for social discovery, By that, I mean finding and forming new friendships as opposed to finding your existing friends from real life and connecting to them on there. So that's what Facebook and MySpace were being used for. Tagged was used to find new folks. And so Tagged evolved into becoming more of a discovery platform than your traditional social network. And it served as kind of a complement to the growing networks rather than as a competitor, which made it a little bit more secure than some of its fellow social networks that were coming out around this time. Now, that's not to say that Tagged didn't have its own share of downsides, at least from the perspective of a non-user who wasn't interested in the service, because when you signed up for Tagged, when you made an account for Tagged, the site would encourage you to share your email address book with the site. Then the site would go on to blast out emails to all your contacts in an effort to get them to come and join tagged too. Now, at some points during the company's history, some of those emails would suggest that users had been tagged in posts, or rather that you had been tagged in a post by a user, or maybe that this this person had personally invited you to join tagged. And that wasn't necessarily true. It was just part of these blast email uh, approaches to try and get more users onto the service. All of that kind of somewhat shady behavior led to a lawsuit in 2009, and ultimately the company would settle out of court and agree to not be quite so aggressive in its marketing approach. Now, as I said earlier, Tagged acquired High 5s IP in 2011. It was scheduled to hold its own uh, IPO, initial public offering, and thus become a publicly traded company in 2014 but tagged scrubbed those plans because user behaviors were shifting away from desktops so people were not accessing tagged using their computers the way they had been which was affecting tag's revenue model this was all part of a general move as people were starting to rely more on mobile devices particularly smartphones to access the web And as I've said in numerous episodes on on lots of different topics, it cannot be overstressed how big an impact the smartphone revolution had on web content. You had entire companies that were dedicated to figuring out how best to package material for mobile because everyone was using mobile devices to access the web, and if your content was not mobile-friendly, then you were losing out on tons of traffic. Well, that's kind of what Tagged was going through at this point. And I also mentioned this in the High Five entry in the series, but the Meet Group, that's M-E-E-T, Meet Group, acquired, Tagged, and subsequently High Five in 2017. Tagged still exists today. You can make a profile and you can use it to meet new friends, Uh, I haven't, but that's because I am old and I am grouchy. There have been a few massively effective internet startup killers in the short history of the web. Uh, There was the dot-com bubble burst that killed lots of startups. It laid waste to tons of them. Though, to be fair, some of those companies were probably on thin ice to begin with. It was just that the dot-com crash was... Definitely too much for them to make it through. But yeah, there, there were plenty of early web startups where if you took a good look at their business plan or in some cases lack thereof, you'd say, yeah, of course those didn't last the test of time. But there have been also various economic downturns, like one in 2008, that a lot of companies were unable to push through. But there's one killer who has been consistently effective in this startup world and, uh, and terrifying, and that would be Google. Google is the company that never launched or acquired an application that it could not subsequently kill off later on. Uh, The company's infamous for launching or acquiring and then shutting down various services and features or sometimes incorporating parts of them into other products. So there are some Frankenstein monster style Google products out there that are uh, the sum of a bunch of parts that came from other startups and services over the years. And there will be other examples of social networks that were later killed by Google as we go on. But right now we're going to talk about Orkut, which was not acquired by Google. It was incubated there. The social network was named after a software engineer. So Orkut is his name. He's a Turkish software engineer. And this particular project grew out of Google's then policy of allowing employees 20% time to work on their own projects. So what this meant was you could spend one-fifth of every week working on projects that are outside of your official duties. So you still had to do your job, right? You had had things you had to do as whatever your role was. But 20% of your time could also be spent on other projects. And the idea was that engineers would create interesting tools and services and features or technologies that Google could later incorporate or adopt in the future. And Orkut, the social network, started out as just that kind of a project. Now, Google had previously attempted to acquire Friendster, but that effort fizzled out. Friendster declined the offer. And Orkut would be kind of a a next step in Google's attempts to kind of tap into social networks. It launched... Fairly quietly, it was initially an invitation-only service. Uh, that's actually a tactic Google has used a few times with its products. It used it with Gmail. It used it with Google+, which we'll talk about in a future episode. And let me tell you, nothing works quite so well for driving up interest in a product as making it somewhat exclusive, because everyone wants to be important enough to get into the club, particularly when you know that other people are not going to be allowed in. But just a few months after the social network launched, it became clear that users in a couple of regions were responding to it way more enthusiastically than in others. For example, users in Brazil were particularly attracted to Orkut. Uh, They outnumbered North American users two to one just six months after Orkut launched. Over time, India would become another huge market for Orkut. And in both of these places, Uh, You were seeing a similar trend in that more and more people were just starting to get access to the internet, and Orkut was looking like an on-ramp for social networks for these folks, where they might otherwise be intimidated or not feel like other social networks were quite as friendly to them because they were already dominated by English-speaking people in North America and other places in the world. So. It didn't see that much traction outside of Brazil and India, but it was popular enough in those two countries to convince folks that Orkut was the big company and Google was the subsidiary. You heard stories about that, like people in Brazil or India thought Orkut owned Google, not the other way around, because that's how important this social network was in those countries. Interesting side note, one person who served as the product manager for Orkut was Marissa Meyer. Now, this is the same person who would later be hired by Yahoo. She she left Google to join Yahoo to serve as the CEO of Yahoo. Her tenure at Yahoo would become one of controversy and derision in some circles, but that's a story for another time. Anyway, for a while, Orkut survived because, again, it was so popular in Brazil and India. But as Facebook expanded into other countries... Google saw Orkut's popularity go into decline. Further, in 2011, Google would launch another social network, which, again, we're going to talk about in a later episode, called Google+. And since Google+, was clearly going to be the future of social networks, and because Orkut was already losing users to Facebook, Google made the decision in 2014 to shut Orkut down for good. And, um just a spoiler alert for the future episode, things would not go smoothly for Google Plus as it turned out. All right, we're now up to 2005. And one of the most crazy up and down stories of social networks is right around the corner. We're gonna talk about Bebo. So this company was founded by wife and husband team Shochi and Michael Birch in 2005. The name Bebo came from the site's motto, which was blog early, Blog often. The profile design for Bebo gave users freedom to customize their profiles a bit. It was a modular approach, which was kind of cool. Made me think a little bit about MySpace, which also was kind of modular back in the day. And you could have a private profile where only your friends could view it, or you could allow the general public access to view your content. And that would include stuff like blogs and friend comments. Later on, it would support stuff like photos and videos. And Bebo became a kind of centralized location for pretty much all things you. It combined elements you would find on other platforms like MySpace, Facebook, and later on, stuff like YouTube. It also allowed users to link other social platforms to Bebo, creating a kind of consolidated site of social network activity. That's something we've also seen in other social network services as well. For three years, Bebo operated independently. It grew in importance, particularly in the UK and in Ireland, where it became quite popular. And this led up to one of the biggest acquisitions in social networking history up to that point when, in 2008, AOL bought Bebo from the Birches for an astounding $850 bucks. Now, keep in mind, News Corp had purchased MySpace which was the number one social network at that time for $580 million. So yeah, Bebo getting bought for $850 million, that was a huge deal. And it was also a deal that other folks at AOL thought was, uh, to put it mildly, a boneheaded move. Randy Falco, the CEO at the time of the acquisition, would be removed from that position in 2009. He would be replaced by a former Google executive named Tim Armstrong to take over at AOL. And it is true that the acquisition was foolhardy. AOL paid way too much for Bebo. But what made the matter worse was that 2008, if you remember, I mentioned it earlier in the episode, that was when we saw a massive economic downturn. AOL would only hold on to Bebo for two years. It sold it in 2010 to a company called Criterion Capital Partners, or CCP, for reportedly less than $10 million. So let that sink in. Bebo was bought for $850 million, sold for less than $10 million, although some sources say it might have been as much as $25 million. Still, that's nothing compared to what it was bought for. And that really puts it into perspective with the MySpace story, because MySpace was bought for 580 million and sold for 35 million. So as bad as the MySpace deal was, it still was better than Bebo. Now, we should also remember this was the same time that Facebook was overtaking MySpace and muscling out many of the other social networks out there. And Bebo, while initially grabbing onto some attention, was getting progressively lost in this bigger picture with companies like Facebook dominating the conversation. We'll talk about Bebo's fate, which takes more twists and turns. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
3: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now, I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
0: Okay, we left off with Bebo being acquired by CCP, Criterion Capital Partners. Uh, At that time, Michael Birch, you know, the the husband of the husband-wife team that created Bebo in the first place, would invest in Bebo under Criterion Capital. So he got re-involved in his creation. Uh, Bebo under CCP tried to reinvent itself. It did a full redesign But ultimately, the economic pressures and the influence of Facebook meant that the site just wasn't performing well. It wasn't attracting enough users. It wasn't generating enough revenue. And ultimately, CCP declared bankruptcy in 2013. And that's when the husband-wife team of the Birches swept back in. So they had sold Bebo for $850 million in 2008. They bought it back for, let's see, $1 million. That is is a heck of a deal. Sell it for 850 million, buy it back for 1 million. This is not the end of Bebo. The story t- continues to go bonkers bananas. So, Bebo then goes dark for nearly 2 years because the Birches and their team, they set about overhauling the platform. They're like, "Well, obviously we can't come back just as Bebo. That's not going to be successful. We have to figure out what is Bebo moving forward." Because the social network space at this point is truly dominated by Facebook. So this is around 2013 when Bebo goes dark. It would reemerge in 2015, but it had gone through quite a few changes and it would continue to change. So the first incarnation was called Bebo Blab, which was a messaging video app and you could send video messages to your friends. So kind of like a text message, but a video message, this little ephemeral video message that you send to your buddies. And it quickly gained a few million users like it was popular early on, but it didn't have any staying power. People quickly moved away from Bebo to use other things. Part of the problem might have been that it just didn't attract enough people to adopt it and keep the service sustainable, because if. Only half, like like if you adopt Bebo, but none of your friends do, well, then you just have half a conversation going on as you generate these videos and send them. But if they're not creating Bebo accounts, it's not like you're getting anything back. And that's not much fun to, you know, only hold half a conversation unless you're a podcaster. Bebo switched focus to esports streaming and then it actually switched to organizing and running esports tournaments. But this, too, proved to be unsustainable. And in 2018, uh, the same year this version of Bebo had launched, the site would go dark again. So it didn't even spend a full year being kind of an esports entity. But one company that paid attention to Bebo at this time and thought there was some IP there that would be really useful was Amazon in the form of its subsidiary, Twitch, Now, Twitch, of course, is known primarily as a platform for creators to stream themselves as they play video games, although there are lots of other types of channels as well. So Twitch purchased Bebo in 2019 for maybe $25 million, maybe less than that. Again, these deals are never fully public, so it's hard to say. But as long as it was more than $1 million, it would still be more than what the purchase spent when they were buying it back in the first place, though obviously... The subsequent investments in the platform to turn it into the new Bebo were presumably more than that. Then we get up to 2021. And to be honest, y'all, I don't know how this all happened. Uh, I ran out of time and I could not dive deep enough to find out exactly the details behind this. I do not know if Michael Birch simply retained the rights to the name Bebo or not. Or if they purchased those rights back from Amazon. But in 2021, Michael Birch posted on Twitter the following message: quote, Am launching Bibo.com as a social network next month. Have been coding it myself during lockdown. I put a coming soon page up yesterday and it trended on Twitter in Ireland. Hopefully the actual site does nearly as well. End quote. So it sounded like the social network that started got bought and sold and shut down and reinvented and shut down again and reinvented again and shut down again and bought again, was now going to be an independent social network once more. However, it was not to be. So if you were to go to Bebo.com now, you will see the following message. Quote, We tried our best to resurrect Bebo, to create something new and fresh, but perhaps it wasn't new or fresh enough. This has been a fun project built during the pandemic, but sadly, it must be sunsetted. We are grateful to everyone who joined us on this journey. Your support is greatly appreciated. Will Bebo rise again? Who knows? It has now lived four times, been sold twice. Hmm. It's been emotional. Michael Birch. So yeah, big dramatic story, that. In 2005, we got the launches of a couple of sites that kind of overlap with social networks, but neither of them quite fall neatly into traditional social networks. And so I thought we would close out with them because they are important, even if you don't think of them as your typical social networks. And those would be YouTube and Reddit. So let's do YouTube first. And we won't go through a thorough history of YouTube, because it's only tangentially related to social networks. But three former PayPal employees, Steve Chen, Chad Hurley, and Jawed Karim, they founded YouTube in 2005. And they were already pretty well off at the time because uh, they had been working at PayPal, and then PayPal got bought out by eBay. So they all got a handsome payout, but they wanted to go and make something of their own. And they recognized that at the time, While you could share digital photos online fairly easily, the same could not be said for digital videos. And so they started to design YouTube. There are actually multiple conflicting stories about what gave them the real idea for YouTube and the focus of YouTube. Like there are a lot of stories that say that YouTube initially was more Uh, kind of catering to dating, like almost like computer dating, which would make it not that different from, say, Facebook. But again, there are a lot of conflicting stories because people have different memories, I guess. And also, some stories were drummed up more for the sake of publicity than others. So it's kind of hard to say what is truly reliable information about the founding of the company. But anyway, some of y'all might actually remember a time on the Internet when If you wanted to watch a video, what that really meant was that you would go to a site, you would download a video file to your local computer, and then use a desktop-based app to launch the video and watch it. I mean, that's how I remember watching the first season of Red vs. Blue from Rooster Teeth that way. I would download the videos and then watch them on my computer. There were very few video solutions that were online at that time, though there were were a couple. I mean, in fact, Vimeo was already in existence when YouTube was just taking shape. It just wasn't being used or promoted very much. Famously, the first video on YouTube published in April 2005 was called Me at the Zoo, and it had one of the co-founders at the San Diego Zoo, and YouTube would open a public beta a month later and invite people to join in and start uploading videos. It would officially launch in December of 2005. Early on, users had to work within some pretty strict limitations. Video files could be no larger than just 100 megabytes, so they were really short. It would actually take quite some time before YouTube would really shift toward promoting longer form content. Uh, For years, there was a, a hard limit of 10 minutes for the vast majority of users on YouTube. And then eventually those restrictions would become less and less important. Uh, with YouTube really focusing on long form content at a point, and now it's kind of shifting back to short form as platforms like TikTok gain more and more popularity. But Even before YouTube had launched out of its beta, the site was attracting tens of thousands of visitors every day. And by January 2006, they were racking up more than 25 million views of the videos on the the site every day. Uh, The trajectory was really clear. By the summer of 2006, the number of views per day topped 100 million And with this success came some problems. There were technical demands to keep the site up and operational, and they were increasing dramatically. So it was an important and expensive job to add more computational assets like storage and stuff in order to keep YouTube going. Plus, people were already showing a bit of a tendency to upload videos that, you know, they didn't actually own the rights to. So various entertainment studios in the worlds of music, movies, and television really began to crack down on YouTube due to the proliferation of copyright infringement across the site. Fortunately, Big Daddy Google came a-callin' in November 2006 and signed an acquisition deal with YouTube, purchasing YouTube in a deal that was valued at $1.65 billion with a B dollars in stock. So each co-founder walked away with the equivalent of around $400 million. Yowza. Google got to work smoothing out issues with the various entertainment studios, and in a rare move, it would keep YouTube as its own separate company. So it did not directly incorporate YouTube into Google's empire the way it would with other purchases. Then we entered into the early age of viral videos and YouTube would later introduce a partner program which would allow content creators to make money off of advertising that was served against their videos. That story has its own set of dramatic turns. Like I could do a full series of episodes about YouTube's partner program. But anyway, the debut of the iPhone and the evolution of the web into something the average person would access, you know, anywhere with the benefit of a mobile device would really fuel YouTube's growth quite a bit. And Google would later make some choices about profiles and logins that would affect YouTube. There was a time when Google, in an effort to encourage more accountability, was cracking down on usernames. But that move would get a lot of resistance from multiple groups of people, and Google would ease off on those requirements. I'm not really diving into that because we're going to talk about that more when we get to Google+. While there are vloggers on YouTube who have their own communities around them, it's fair to say that YouTube isn't really a social network the way other networks are. It is, however, a platform that has played an important part with social networks as people have shared YouTube videos elsewhere and as people have grown communities around their their content. All right, so let's finish up with Reddit. In 2005, Alexis Ohanian and Steve Huffman were attending the University of Virginia, and they were working on a new idea for the web. Their early efforts merged fairly quickly with another project called Infogami, which was led by Aaron Schwartz, and he joined the co-founders for Reddit. And together, they wanted to create a website where users could build little subdomains dedicated to specific interests and hobbies. So folks could visit the site, and then they could go to whichever of the subdomains, or subreddits as they became known that they found interesting. So maybe you like fly fishing. Well, there's a subreddit for that. Maybe you like politics. There are multiple subreddits for that. Maybe you like Disney. There are subreddits for that. So users can contribute to conversations. They can post in threads and leave messages for each other. They can create new threads that are based on whatever the subreddit is focused on and gradually communities would form around these. And some of those communities would become incredibly influential and important. Some of them would become unbelievably toxic, and some would be both. The founders referred to Reddit as the front page of the internet. So the idea is that users are curating interesting content relating to, you know, whatever specific interests that relate to particular subreddits, and then they share that content, they publish it within those subreddits. And some subreddits would become wildly popular and have tens of thousands of people involved in it and get tons of users and traffic and engagement. Some are much more niche and they have a much smaller community, but that community can still have a really strong emotional investment in the subject matter and be really engaged in the community. It's still just a niche interest. And this idea really caught on. And one year after launching, the publisher Condé Nast would come along and scoop up Reddit for somewhere between 10 and $20 million. And Reddit would remain nestled under Condé Nast until 2011. And then Reddit became a full subsidiary of Condé Nast's own parent company, Advanced Publications. So Reddit also is not your typical social network site. Users can create a profile, they have a username, they use a password to access it. They can subscribe to specific subreddits that they're interested in. They can leave messages for each other and all that sort of stuff. In addition, in 2010, the site introduced the concept of gold memberships, also known as Reddit premium. This would bring in revenue for Reddit that would supplement the money that was already coming in from advertising. So you might say, well, what? What does a Reddit premium member get? So Reddit premium membership has a few benefits. For one, it lets users browse Reddit without ads. So they don't see the ads or the promoted Reddits, which by the way, it's kind of like promoted Google search results where it can appear like it's just a normal uh, entry in a subreddit. And if you don't notice the fact that it was promoted, you might just think, oh, some user has submitted this, but in fact, it is an ad. But uh, yeah, premium members don't see those. They also get a monthly allowance of Reddit coins that also sometimes is known as Reddit gold, but that made things really confusing because the premium membership is called Reddit gold and the coins would also be called Reddit gold. So they get confused and you might say, well, what can you even buy with Reddit coins? Well, you can use them to buy awards to give other folks on Reddit Those Reddit coins are are really meant to provide benefits to other users. So let's say you've got coins and you use them to purchase an award for a Reddit user who has posted something that you think is really cool, or they made a really good point in a thread, or they're just being incredibly helpful and you want to award them. You can give them an award and that award might allow that Reddit user some certain benefits. Like maybe it'll give them some Reddit coins or maybe it will let them browse Reddit without ads for a while, that kind of thing. So the Reddit coin system allows users to purchase awards for other users. And as far as I can tell, those awards have limited value, which is interesting because, holy cow, there can be a lot of, I guess not competition, but requests to be recognized like people. uh, And there are a lot of accusations that you'll see on Reddit on occasion where people will accuse others of pandering in an effort to get more Reddit coins. But what do I know? I'm just a casual Reddit user. I don't pretend like I fully understand the community there. I definitely see Reddit as being incredibly useful, particularly if you want to get a good view of how a community is thinking about a specific topic at any given amount of time. But beyond that, I find the community dynamics to be puzzling at best. Again, I'm grouchy and I'm old. Anyway, Reddit, as I said, is tangentially related to social networks. There are communities. uh, Users can become really well-known or infamous, depending upon their reputations within those communities and beyond. Uh, Entire communities can become incredibly influential or Due to the spread of toxic behavior and abuse, they can be wiped from Reddit entirely. It's a wild place. All right. That's enough about Reddit. Like I said, I could do a full episode and probably will do a full episode about Reddit and kind of dive into its evolution uh, because a lot of things have happened on that platform over the years and have changed it dramatically from one incarnation to the next. And I can also talk about Reddit versus Dig. That would be fun. But that's it for this episode. Next time, we will tackle Twitter, which will probably take up a large part of the episode, and a few other social networks. If you would like to suggest topics for future episodes of of Tech Stuff, including big stories in 2022 I should cover in my end-of-the-year wrap-up, let me know. You can download the iHeartRadio app for free, navigate over to Tech Stuff in the search field. There's a little microphone icon. You can leave me a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. Or if you prefer, you can use Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts it's
3: brand new season two